Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Caroline Metzger about her new book, Forging Germans, Youth, Nation and the National Socialist Mobilization of Ethnic Germans in Yugoslavia, 1918-1944, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Welcome, Caroline. Hello, Jill, and thank you so much for the introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to host you. So just a little background on Dr. Metzger before we begin. She completed her PhD in History and Civilization at the European University Institute in Florence in 2016. She currently works at the Leibniz Institute for Contemporary History in Munich, where she leads the interdisciplinary junior research group project Manhut Manspricht, Informal Communication and Information from Below in Nazi Europe. She is also an associate lecturer at the University of the German Federal Armed Forces in Munich. Her research focuses on the 20th century history of Central and Southeastern Europe, World War II and the Holocaust, borderland minorities, migration, and the history of childhood and youth. In addition to this book, in 2019, she co-edited a special issue for European Holocaust Studies entitled The Holocaust in the Borderlands, Interethnic Relations and the Dynamics of Violence in Occupied Eastern Europe. So Caroline, can you tell us how you came to write this book? Um, sure. So the book has its um, origins in my doctoral dissertation, although this was you know, heavily revised and abridged and so on. And really... Well, it starts sort of with a personal story, actually, I guess, as all, um, you know, good stories do. Um, So when I was, you know, sort of a young bachelor's student looking for a topic for my BA thesis, um, I really grew interested by um, the expulsion of some 12 to 14 million ethnic Germans um, from Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe towards the end of the war. Um, Now, I had um, some very distant relatives who had experienced this, and so I interviewed them, actually, for this thesis. Now, um, it turns out that these relatives of mine, they actually came from uh, Yugoslavia. 
um, which was fascinating to me because at that point I had never heard of the fact um, that there was sort of an ethnic German community um, in Yugoslavia. And I was really sort of blown away um, by one particular statement um, made by one of my interviewees, um, which was basically, I mean, he was telling me how, just how German um, his community was. So, of course, um, you know, he, he lived in this very interethnic, um, multicultural, multireligious um, region towards the north of Yugoslavia called the Vojvodina. Um, and so he was explaining, you know, that, you know, sort of despite that, I mean, we spoke German, we read German, my school was German. I was even in the Hitler Youth. Um, and I was really taken aback by this statement because I had not realized that there was even something like a Hitler Youth um, abroad or in Yugoslavia. And so I started, you know, thinking about this, wanting to learn more and sort of, you know, wanting to understand better why, you know, decades after the fact, um, you know, an interviewee might still try to express their Germanness to me by membership in something like the Hitler Youth. Um, so essentially, this turned into a research project of some 10 years um, that culminated in this book um, where I basically researched um, the ethnic German community um, in Yugoslavia um, and its position in the interwar period, World War II, um, and sort of looking at youth in particular and how they were mobilized into different kinds of youth groups and especially the Hitler Youth, because essentially this is a history um, that had never been written. Um, so that was my um, way into uh, this project. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And of course, uh, in our discussion prior to the recording, I talked about how I also have linkages with the region. Uh, my grandmother was born in Vojvodina. So it, it was a fascinating book to read on, on many levels for me. So one of my questions was actually going to be about youth, my second question. Uh, but before I get to that, I'd like to talk about the regions you focus on. You examine the Bachka region and uh, Western Banat. So can you tell us a little bit about these areas, their history, their culture, and how it is that large populations of Germans uh, ended up residing there? Um, sure. Well, essentially, so the region I, I mean, and I looked at... Um, two specific territories, as you mentioned. So one is uh, the Bajkan, one is the Western Banat, also known as sort of the, the Serbian Banat. Um, and really, these are sort of two of the, you know, three sections of what might comprise the, the Vojvodina, um, which is sort of a, um, right now in its current um, form, is basically a semi-autonomous territory in northern Serbia. This region was, I mean, essentially uh, sort of a Habsburg territory um, for most of its modern history. So during the 18th century, essentially with the end of Ottoman rule uh, in the region, um, the Habsburgs um, start sort of repopulating the territory. So especially under sort of Maria Theresia um, and her son Joseph II, they start, um, well, very specific programs actually to try to bring tens of thousands of German-speaking settlers into this region. Um, so most of these, to begin with, were, were Catholic. Um, and then finally, you know, you have some Protestant settlements too. Uh, now, of course, um, 
the region uh, was not only composed of uh, these ethnic German settlers, um, it was also, you know, completely multi-ethnic, as I said. So you had, you know, sort of Serbian populations, Croatian populations, uh, minorities uh, that are lesser known, um, like Shokats, Bunjevats, um, you have Romanians, you have Jewish populations, um, and so on and so forth. So during, um, well, I mean, essentially, uh, at the end of World War One, with the collapse of um, the Habsburg Empire, these territories are sort of reshuffled once again. Um, what was the Banat? Uh, sort of half of it or part of it goes to Romania, the eastern part. The western part goes to the newly founded Kingdom of um, Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. Um, the Bachka, most of that also joins the newly formed uh, Yugoslav Kingdom, although a tiny, tiny sliver stays in Hungary, um, where it currently still is. Now, the interest um, of this region is, you know, as you, as you said, that it's completely multi-ethnic. Now, of course, you know, any scholar of sort of modern Eastern, Central, Southeastern Europe um, knows that most of these territories, certainly with some kind of borderland status, that that was the reality, right? Um, that, you know, every town and village, I mean, they might have had a specific majority, right? But generally speaking, they were a complete mix of um, mother tongues, religious confession, um, and so on and so forth. In this particular region, um, what is quite interesting is, in fact, that unlike in many sort of Eastern Central European territories, um, there's no very obvious majority, actually. Um, so in most of the Bachka, most of the Banat, I mean, you have towns that are mostly German, for instance, or mostly Serbian. Um, but really, you know, sort of Germans, Serbians, Hungarians, and so on, on average, they're about a quarter to a third of the population. So the dynamics, certainly under occupation, um, under, you know, sort of German or Hungarian occupation during World War II, which is the period of that I look at, um, becomes a little more complicated than in some other sort of Eastern and Central European territories. Thank you for providing that historical context of the region and also placing Yugoslavia within, you know, the more general history of minorities in East Central Europe. Uh, okay, I'd like to move on to the subject of your book, one of the major subjects, uh, young people. And so your, your analysis of interwar and wartime Yugoslavia is framed through the lens of youth. And why are young people a fruitful site for understanding how national identity was constructed and expressed in the Bachka and in the Western Banat? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think what we need to realize is that um, during the interwar period, there's this global obsession that arises around youth, childhood as well, but especially youth, um, because youth is sort of seen as this fairly malleable but powerful reservoir um, for building sort of national movements, political movements, religious movements, and sort of um, bringing these into the future, right? Um, so, I mean, certainly um, everybody sort of knows about, you know, the Hitler youth, um, but you have very similar, especially sort of, um, well, state or nation-based movements going on around the world um, that are really focused on mobilizing their people and creating new loyalties and sort of, you know, giving sort of um, life, I guess, 
to certain ideological programs for generations to come. Um, now, in these sort of borderland regions, like the one that I was looking at um, in the Voivodina, sort of this this idea of youth as a potential, but also sort of a a threat becomes quite quite um, important. So certainly in these you know multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious spaces, you have this um, you have multiple national uh, programs, ideological programs, um, essentially trying to make certain claims on you know local populations in terms of you know um, assigning nationality for instance or trying to create you know um, loyalty towards an exclusivist uh, German or Yugoslav or I don't know identity now the problem of course with ch- children and with youth is that they're you know or at least you know the problem as far as activists saw it was that um, children you know they slipped very easily between sort of you know essentialized categories um, like mother tongue, like national affiliation, and so on and so forth. So this question of trying to stamp out um, ideological or national loyalties in a borderline population um, becomes even more complicated than with these youths who, who are, you know, very easily multilingual, for instance. Yeah, I mean, young people are potentially rich uh, subjects of analysis, especially during periods of upheaval, major political and social uh, transformation and transition. But I'm wondering what some of the challenges historians, scholars uh, face when studying youth, and what are some of the concerns they need to keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the most sort of classic problems that has been um, identified by historians is, is this question of sources, right? So certainly, um, you know, um, I, mean, I think, you know, children and young people, they rarely leave behind the types of historic records um, that one might find uh, in a classical archive um, that are usually, you know, sort of highlighting um, adult perspectives, sort of the diplomatic or the state perspective or the organization's perspective and so on. Um, so really, um, it becomes sort of a theoretical and methodological problem in terms of how do you actually not just highlight youth, but highlight the perspective of youth, right? Um, so essentially, um, in my book, I used, I'd say about, well, three categories, really, of sources to try to get at um, the experiences of children and of youth. Um, so the first, of course, is this sort of more classic, you know, archival um, work on um well, let's say correspondence and theories um, about youth and about children. So sort of, um, well, activists' perspective, for instance, on what is supposed to happen um, to youth. So, you know, I found also ideological pamphlets, um, you know, literature that was created um, for, for schools, for instance, Um so basically, sort of this activist or educator's perspective on youth. Then the second is basically um, sources created by children and youth, which certainly in my case, um, well, is very, very rare, right? So one of the problems I had in general was that um, the sources for this book were extremely scattered. Now, towards the end of the war, um, I mean, we didn't really get to that <laughs> yet, 
but certainly as so by late 1944, um, as the Eastern Front sort of crumbles um, for the Axis, um, about half of the local ethnic German population, they flee as fast as they can. Um, and the other half spends several years in various um, uh, partisan camps, essentially, or as forced laborers in the so- Soviet Union. Um, so just by this, you know, mobility um, and essentially by the sort of destruction um, of the local German communities um, that occurred then, there are just not a lot of sources in place anymore um, on, you know, these populations and certainly nothing in terms of ego documents. So so there, there simply are no, you know, personal diaries, for instance, very few photographs, very few, you know, um, sources that were actually created by youth of that period. Um, but what I have found, for instance, were, um, you know, submissions to editors um, of local youth journals that give at least sort of a, a mediated idea, I guess, of how youth wanted to portray themselves in that time. And then the third type of source, um, which was in many ways the most, I think, significant and the most difficult to work with, um, was oral history, of course. So I did um, interviews with almost 20, you know, sort of witnesses um, of these events. So uh, men and women who had been children and youth in the 1930s and 40s uh, in the territory, and who had experienced, you know, sort of the the, the rise of national socialism in their communities, um, then finally, you know, their flight um, from the region. And so essentially what this gave me was at least sort of an adult perspective on their childhood. Um, And sort of in triangulating these different types of sources, I really sort of hoped to create sort of a rich image on what it meant to be, you know, a young person or a child um, in these very dramatic historical circumstances. Yeah, your source space is really impressive that you're examining this uh, topic from so many uh, perspectives and at so many levels. And the oral histories were fascinating. I feel like it really gives the story dimension um, and, of course, personal insight into how uh, young people experience this period, or at least their reflection on how they experienced that period when they were young. And my related question, uh, follow-up to this is, what are some of the challenges associated with these oral histories then? Because, of course, there's the issue of the, the passage of time, and we're talking about decades, but also the issue of their participation, their collaboration, uh, their engagement with a regime that uh, is responsible for committing uh, horrific atrocities. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, basically, so maybe to give some more background too, in terms of who <laughs> who these Donauschwaben are, right, in the period um, that I look at in my book. Um, so, you know, in 1941, basically the, the, the Axis invades um, Yugoslavia and dismembers it into sort of more occupied zones than any other country in Europe during World War II. So the Bacica comes under basically Hungarian occupation and the Banat, uh, under German occupation. Uh, Now, these are both Axis powers, of course. And so um, already during the interwar period, um, you have this rise of national socialist youth organizations that sort of goes in hand, both with sort of local um, attempts, uh, sort of nation building attempts um, in uh, sort of among the Donauschwaben in Yugoslavia. And of course, you know, Nazi Germany's uh, 
rising interest in Germans in these periods. Um, now, under occupation, um, these Nazi youth movements, I mean, essentially, they're called the Deutsche Jugend, um, they become mandatory, I mean, differently in the different territories. We can get into that later. Um, and something like 90% of ethnic Germans there join the Nazi youth movement. So, you know, this goes basically from kindergarten children to um, young adults. And in these functions, of course, they're mobilized sort of on the home front. Um, so they, they um, you know, help produce basically raw materials uh, for Germany. I mean, hundreds of tons of agricultural goods, of, of silk <laughs> for Luftwaffe parachutes, um, and so on and so forth. But then especially boys and young men, they're drafted very directly into the Waffen-SS. Um, so the region becomes a feeder, basically, of tens of thousands of um, mainly Waffen-SS troops. And in that function, of course, these ethnic Germans also implicate themselves in service, as you said, uh, in atrocities, uh, in you know concentration camps, for instance, in very brutal anti-partisan warfare uh, in the Balkans, in all kinds of atrocities on the Eastern Front, and so on and so forth. Now, given all that, um, the issue of memory was always a very difficult one for these types of ethnic Germans. Um, so certainly, during the sort of post-war period until relatively recently, there's been, um, you know, sort of, sort of Donauschwaben authors reflecting on their experience in memoirs, in histories that they themselves became, started writing and so on, um, are very heavily entrenched in um, this project, essentially, to portray themselves as the actual victims of war um, through their expulsion, as opposed to the sort of vanguard of national socialist movements in the Balkans. So partially, um, I think this explains why there has been so little research actually on this topic, on a topic like the Hitler Youth among these ethnic German populations. It's not, not just, you know, a source problem. It's also a problem of sort of acknowledging <laughs> that these even existed. Um, so for many, you know, decades, this wasn't really spoken of. But really, um, as I, you know, in, in, in a way, um, this is starting. This is starting to to change. I mean, certainly you have, um, I think, more critical narratives um, appearing also in Danube's Swabian organizations and so on. You have historians who've been working very hard uh, to show sort of the the I guess the gray zones <laughs> of the story. And I mean, to take it back to oral history, um, given all that, I was really actively warned quite often against. <laughs> doing something like oral histories um, with ethnic Germans, with these kinds of experiences, um, because essentially I think the expectation was that I would receive sort of a simple replication of this kind of problematic victimhood narrative. Now, in some cases, um, I got that. I mean, definitely. Um, and certainly a lot of the oral history interviews, you know, I'd sort of start with a very basic, where are you from, when were you born, and so on. Um, they start the story with their narrative of expulsion, essentially. So to explain, you know, where they came from, 
they they explain, you know, how they had to leave it. But then, you know, in 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 very many cases, I'd say in most cases, I feel like the people I was interviewing, they just appreciated the fact that someone was listening to them, which meant in some cases um, of interviewees who were still, you know, decades later, extremely enthusiastic about the Nazi project. Um, they'd spend the next few hours sort of boasting about their involvement in all kinds of Nazi projects, which was, I mean, horrifying for me personally and quite difficult <laughs> to deal with um, as an interviewer. But certainly I think brought sort of into the open um, all kinds of, you know, stories um, that basically people hadn't really heard um, in terms of sort of, you know, for instance, you know, uh, uh, sort of the Hitler Youth's um, programs that they actually put in place in the early 1940s to bring youths, you know, from the Balkans into Hitler Youth Academies in Germany and these kinds of things. So all these narratives were, were fascinating, of course. Um, but then, you know, very often, you know, I got actually some very, I'd say, sort of differentiated um, reflections, actually, on, you know, people's own relationship to this kind of past, right? So I got very, very diverse responses to the types of questions I had, um, which I think reflect, certainly, I think, very different historical experiences, but then also very different ways um, of dealing with a very painful and complicated past. That's really fascinating. And I, I imagine the diversity has to do uh, in part with gender and the specific age of the individuals at the time of the war, what they were doing in the war, what they ended up doing. Then, of course, as you say, you know, their experience of expulsion and, the, and then the post-war period. And then also just the choice, desire to come to terms with the past, their own past, right? Their what they did, and then of course the other issue of blocking certain memories, repressing them, right? Forgetting certain things in old age. I feel like there's so many factors, but I think it's fantastic that at least from a historical perspective, right, that you came away with these diverse portraits, and so that you are able to highlight these gray areas, right? And that you have this nuanced portrait that very much challenged, you know, your probably your expectation going going in. And that I would imagine to some degree kind of mirrors what you would see in other communities in East Central Europe uh, during this period, as well as uh, Germany. Okay, I would like to actually move kind of backward in time now to the upbringing of these uh, communities and looking at schooling in particular, because uh, one of the sites you look at, you examine how schooling played a role in shaping this national identity uh, of these um, Germans in Yugoslavia during the interwar period. So can you tell us a little bit about German language schooling and schooling in particular in Yugoslavia during the interwar period and, you know, kind of what happens because, of course, we're dealing with a pretty much Serb-dominated state. Um, and so how do these communities advocate for themselves and how does nationalism then, let's say, Serb nationalism play a role in the growth of these German language schools? Um, yeah, Good question. I mean, um, so so I guess that that takes me back really to the to the first chapter of the book, right? Um, where essentially, um, I mean, I look as you said at sort of the status of uh, German language schools 
in the Voivodina um, in the interwar period and how that changes, because um, it's really quite critical. I mean, on the one hand, you know, for this focus, of course, on childhood and youth and how that was politicized during the interwar period, um, but then also the very important role that schools played um, for sort of nationalizing uh, projects. Now, so, I mean, basically the um, sort of education in the region um, was quite, well, complex, really. I mean, you had a lot of schools um, that were religious-based. Um, so, the, so the original sort of Habsburg-era schools were almost exclusively um, religious, so, so, so Catholic-based schools. Um, although that changed with various reforms sort of during the 19th century um, as the Habsburg Empire or the Habsburg, you know, monarchs tried to sort of, you know, centralize and secularize a lot of the education, um, as well as sort of bring it more to the masses, right? So, so that's, you know, sort of <laughs> Habsburg era school reform, right? Now, basically, um, the education that someone received very much depended on where exactly they were born and when, um, so very often people, let's say during the late Habsburg period, they were still sort of receiving quite a bit of German education, although most of that was in fact Hungarian because, well, certainly the region, well, that particular region um, was rather part of the, the, the Hungarian, um, part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. Um, so these schools had come under Magyarization, meaning that uh, they were sort of nationalized um, over time in, in a Hungarian sense. Um, now, so after the war, when the region becomes, um, well, integrated uh, into this new Yugoslav state, initially sort of the, a vacuum opens in a sense of control over these minority schools, right? So a lot of the schools that were previously Magyarized sort of spontaneously turned back into German language schools. Um, now by sort of 1920, the Yugoslav state um, puts together some fairly precise rules and laws in terms of how schools are supposed to look um, in the new Yugoslav state. And of course, this is tied very much to this idea of building the Yugoslav nation. Um, in the Bachka and in the Western Banat, this essentially means that um, through various policies, um, such as you know the need to fluently know Serbic Croatian, uh, to be you know a public employee, and these kinds of things, most schools they come essentially under well, they, anyways they come under uh, Yugoslav control. The churches lose most of their control over local education, and the official language of education uh, in most cases becomes Serbo-Croatian, um, which of course presents a problem to most of the um, Donashvaban in the region um, because they don't necessarily speak um, Serbo-Croatian. So this starts um, a whole, well, a whole bunch of activism, basically, um, where local Donashvaban, even families, parents, children, and so on, they start petitioning um, well, first, you know, sort of local authorities and the Yugoslav authorities basically demanding um, German language educational rights. Um, and finally, they sort of take this to the League of Nations and to Germany. So certainly in the interwar period, um, through the League of Nations, um, there is this um, 
certainly in Eastern and Central Europe, um, minority protection clause, essentially, that comes into effect um, that on paper um, gives uh, linguistic minorities um, the right to organize their own schools. Now, that is not always realized. So essentially, um, this question of mother tongue education is taken to the League of Nations, where it's turned as a national problem. Local Donashwab and activists um, also take this to Germany, and of course, to you know, in hope of receiving resp- uh, aid in terms of financial benefits, teachers, and so on, uh, school materials, even. Um, they also frame this as a specifically national problem, as a specifically German problem. Um, so, you know, through basically, in a sense, through this uh, interwar framework of the national minority protection of something like education, local activists also start learning to um, engage sort of the framework of the nation, of the German nation in particular, to try and gain these rights. So initially, they're quite unsuccessful. Um, in 1929, um, there's also the the royal dictatorship that's put in place um, in Yugoslavia, which further restricts a lot of minority rights. And this is not only for the German minority. Um, I have to say that too. Um, but for instance, locally, um, you know, the Hungarian minority is struggling with these kinds of things too. For instance, um, but then by the 1930s, as sort of you know financial links between Yugoslavia and Germany start converging more. As Germany is putting more and more pressure um, on Yugoslavia, the local German minority gains more and more rights, um, followed with, you know, money, lots of money um, from Germany, the foreign office, for instance, um, who starts, um, that starts basically funding German schools. Uh, they start putting in place, uh, you know, sort of teachers, academies, agricultural schools, exchanges with Germany, and so on and so forth, which of course then opens the door, uh, not just to sort of a, well, national German nationalization of the local population, um, but, you know, sort of a pro-Nazi radicalization. So this issue of education and school rights and so on uh, becomes very, very important in the story. Yeah, what I found especially fascinating was this was already happening in Weimar, Germany. So this wasn't just necessarily after the advent of Nazis to power, right? The, the German government is already funding these initiatives. Yeah, I mean... Essentially, um, after World War One, I, I mean, this this feeds into this whole um, question of the Auslandsdeutsche or the Volksdeutsche in general, right? So after World War One, I, I mean, Germany, of course, loses the war quite catastrophically, um, and they lose, you know, a lot of territories um, they had previously held, for instance, in Eastern Europe, and so by their own account, at least. Um, there, they had something like, I don't know, tens of millions, basically, of ethnic Germans, of Auslandsdeutsche, Volksdeutsche, and so on, living in Europe who were no longer or not at all um, within the borders of Germany. Um, so this becomes a highly politicized issue, basically, from the outset. And, you know, all kinds of associations, leagues, um, political interest groups, and so on, are put in place to try to tie 
these ethnic Germans back to Germany. I mean, this is, you know, there's explicitly your dentist project, certainly, but then there are also projects um, basically framed um, as attempts to maintain the German culture of the ethnic Germans abroad. Um, and this is not something that happens only on a secular level. Uh, there are also, you know, religious organizations involved in this. So you have Catholic organizations, you have Lutheran organizations who already during the 1920s um, are lobbying in the German government for um, basically support to help support, you know, sort of their fellow Catholic or Lutheran uh, brethren uh, beyond Germany's borders. Uh, so this is one, you know, very interesting thing I found out in researching my book that it was, you know, also the Catholic Church. Um, it was also the Lutheran Church and various organizations that, you know, at least um, appeared under their banner um, that were involved from the 1920s onwards, really in sort of an ethnic politics um, in places like Yugoslavia that turn into a national politics, which sometimes occasionally turn into a national socialist uh, mobilization of the local population. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the role of the churches next. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on, on how the Catholic and the Lutheran churches were engaged in this process of constructing notions of Germanness in these regions. And you note that these are fluid and, and they vary. Um, so there's not this kind of fixed idea of what it means to be German. And this, of course, then matters subsequently during the Second World War. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the initiatives on the ground uh, undertaken by the churches. Um, sure. Now, I think, you know, maybe I'll sort of start this um, by saying, you know, I, I, I really didn't set out to write about the churches <laughs> and the role of the churches. I mean, really what I was interested in, frankly, to begin with, was Nazi youth groups, sort of German national youth groups, um, and so on. And, of course, looking at its effect on um well, things like national identity or national identification and notions of Germanists in the region. Now, I realized very, very quickly that if you want to look at um, something like the identity or identification or self-identification, especially of a population, you have to look at this, um, you know, open to the perspective of the very people you're trying to study. So trying to look at in what kinds of categories do people think of themselves? Um, and, you know, in the interwar period, this generally was not necessarily in terms of nation. <clears throat> and really sort of in these very rural, very traditional societies um, in the Bachka and the Banat, one of the most salient categories of identification was religion. Um, and religion, you know, helped organize sociability. Certainly, it helped uh, organize formal education. Um, they had youth groups. Um, they had, you know, sort of political interest groups and so on and so forth. So really, there was no way I could write this story without the churches. So the, the first youth groups in the regions, um, so the Bachka and the Banat, um, were religious associations affiliated with the local church. Um, just like, you know, formal education originally was organized by the church and by confession. Um, and really, it was only sort of during the 1920s that other sort of non-religious actors really started becoming important. Um, 
So beyond, you know, the trade associations and things they usually had, beyond the religious organizations, you suddenly have things like Wandervogel movements uh, coming in from Germany. <clears throat> you have, you know, sort of local Hitler youth um, groups, you know, are established and so on and so forth. Um, but the church still remains extremely important and extremely powerful um, in these societies. And in fact, you know, some of the first mm, national activists, if you will, um, in the region, in the interwar period, you know, mm, petitioning Germany, petitioning the League of Nations um, for school rights, for instance, were priests. Um, so priests, for instance, had a status in these societies um, that I think you wouldn't sort of recognized in most sort of Western societies now. Combining, you know, this activism um, of religious groups in Germany then with, you know, local, um, you know, religious groups and interests and so on, modes of identification in the region um, during the interwar period has this very powerful effect. So suddenly religious groups are also framing their interests in more and more sort of nationalized ways. Not all of them do that, of course, but certainly in the 20s and 30s, there's a motivation in place as well, um, locally, to frame your Catholic youth group um, as a German Catholic youth group, because um, that, in many cases, opened um, the way for funding um, from various German organizations. Um, or, or, or materials like books, um, for instance, or summer camps um, for poor children and these kinds of things. So the churches, too, become sort of a nationalizing force in the region. Now, this changes quite dramatically by the late 1930s, by the early 1940s. So by the late 1930s, um, the local Donauschwaben Association basically comes um, directly um, comes directly into the hands of uh, the local sort of Nazified elite, um, is supported by uh, Nazi Germany. And there, the role of the church really starts to change for a lot of people. So youth, um, about 90%, I mean, at least according to, you know, the Deutsche Jugend, sort of the Nazi youth group, um, about 90% of youth by 1941 are organized already um, in the Deutsche Jugend. Now, for a lot of youth that was sort of on paper, and they were still, you know, active in the church, they were still choir boys um, in the Catholic Church and so on. Um, but for a lot, this sort of starts to mean um, a removal um, from traditional religious life in a way. Um, and really, a conflict starts to develop, certainly, um, between the Catholic Church and the local sort of Nazi um, activists. So, for instance, the Deutsche Jugend starts, you know, organizing its main activities on Sunday mornings to clash directly with mass. Um, so youth are sort of left with a choice of either going to the Hitler Youth, um, which was more or less required, or going to church. Um, in the Bochka, which comes under Hungarian uh, control, as we said, the church has a different stance than in the German-occupied Banat. So in the German-occupied Banat, um, these religious youth organizations, they seem to almost disappear 
I mean, basically, they disappear from the archival record. Um, and they sort of disappear from the memories, too, of the people I interviewed. Um, in the Bachka, sort of through Hungarian administration, um, this turns out very differently. So the Hungarian state has a very different relationship to the Catholic Church than the German ones do. And they sort of embrace Catholicism a bit more for their na nation-building project um, than did the Germans. So when the Hungarians come in, they start introducing mandatory uh, Hungarian youth service, like the Levente. They start introducing um, Hungarian schools. Um, basically, the schools are magyarized, once again, for, for the most part, except for some elite um, German institutions, where, you know, prayer and Hungarian and all these kinds of things, uh, visits to the church and so on, um, are, you know, part of this sort of local Hungarian building uh, or Hungarian nation building um, project. Um, and so, you know, these priests who were originally in the 1920s also, you know, active in the German sort of nation building project, um, who were then alienated from this project because of national socialism, they then cling to, you know, their traditional affiliation with the Catholic Church and with the Hungarian nation to create their own movement. So in the Bachka, essentially, society splits very dramatically um, between what my interviewees always called the Braune and the Schwarze. So the Braune being the National Socialists, um, who are still, I mean, 90% of youth are still officially, at least, uh, in the Deutsche Jugend, in the Nazi youth movement. And the Schwarze, or the Blacks, which is this part of society that clings to um, a Catholic, basically pro-Hungarian um, identity, sort of this Habsburg legacy, to fight um, this influence of the Braune. So society splits. And the role of the church um, is a very different one than it is uh, in the Banat. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Great. I feel like you gave us a really good overview, both during the interwar period and then, of course, uh, during the war period. Alongside this, I was wondering about uh, the role of organizations, so non-religious organizations, youth organizations. So could you talk about some of the uh, extracurricular youth groups you know, mm -hmm. that worked to nationalize ethnic Germans during this uh, period? So interwar into the Second World War, and then after that, we can talk about the Second World War in greater detail. Sure. So in the interwar period, it was very diverse. So definitely in the 1920s, um, so the Kulturbund, which is sort of the, 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 the main 
um, ethnic German organization in the, the, the region. Um, in 1920, they're already sort of thinking about, yeah, we should really, you know, start um, youth associations attached to ours, you know, our, our, our local chapters, basically, um, to promote, you know, religious education, German language training, and so on and so forth. But, you know, they it's not necessarily realized. I think it's sort of realized um, in, you know, towns where people are very active. <laughs> Kultobund members are very active in trying to set up some kind of youth or childhood um, chapter. Um, but really, it sort of remains quite split um, and based on sort of Habsburg um, youth groups. So religious-based youth groups, for instance, um, occupational or sort of trade-based uh, youth groups. Um, and then, of course, <clears throat> you have um, the Sokol. So certainly by you know the 1930s, the so Yugoslav Sokol um, becomes very important in this equation too. So, I mean, the, the Sokol is, was not just a Yugoslav organization. It was um, started in, um, well, by a, a sort of a Czech nation-building um, project in the late 1800s. Um, and sort of under the, the royal dictatorship, certainly, this also becomes, at least officially, a requirement um, for Yugoslavia's youth, including um, the ethnic Germans. So definitely in the 20s, in the 30s, up to the late 1930s, youth are sort of still, well, affiliated usually with different types of youth programs all at the same time, right? Um, by the late 1930s, um, as I said, you know, the, the pro-Nazi youth groups, they've become extremely powerful, um, thanks to a large degree to uh, Germany's involvement. Um, so they send, you know, agents um, of the Hitler Jugend in the region to help mobilize people. They start sending youths to Germany to receive training and sort of a national education to bring back home. Um, they bring, you know, delegations of youths and teachers to the Olympics in Berlin and all these kinds of things to really create a lot of enthusiasm for the local um, and I guess more global Nazi project. Um, so most of these more traditional Habsburg era religious um, Donnerschwaben organizations, they start to sort of drop away in favor of the Deutsche Jugend. And as I said, by the end of the um, interwar period, the great majority of ethnic Germans, at least on paper, they've they've joined the Deutsche Jugend, um, although I guess theoretically they're still required through their schools um, to also engage in so-called activities and so on. Yeah, I think this is a good seg into the Second World War, um, in particular with respect to mobilizing these young people in support of Nazism. Uh, so you talked about the fact that these regions are under occupation during the war. So beginning in 1941, the Banat was under German occupation, while the Bachka was under Hungarian occupation. So what happens to ethnic German populations uh, as the war progresses, and how are German youth mobilized in support of the war effort? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that really depends um, on what region you're talking about. Um, so that's one of the things I really sort of discovered in my research uh, for this book. So it really made a difference, actually, um, whether you were living in a region that was occupied directly by Germany um, or by Hungary, for instance, which was, you know, an Axis power, but not Germany. So in the Banat, um, 
actually the ethnic Germans there, they get a unique status, actually, status that ethnic Germans in no other territory in Europe get, which is basically the status of um, the local ruling power. I mean, the Germans come in, the Wehrmacht comes in, and the forces um, to occupy the region. And then within a couple of weeks, basically, um, the um, German, I mean, sort of from Germany, <laughs> the Nazi authorities from Germany, uh, they more or less, you know, delegate power to the local um, ethnic Germans, and they set up basically this Volksgruppe administration, um, into which basically anyone who wants to consider themselves as an ethnic German um, has to subscribe to, um, meaning um, if, for instance, um, you know, you're a German-speaking parent, um, and you want your child to attend a German-speaking school, well, you'd have to sort of, um, I guess, be recognized um, as a German, basically inscribe, at least officially, um, in Nazi projects, um, and inscribe with the Volksgruppe and so on, I guess, uh, at least theoretically adhere to, you know, their, their full Nazi pro- program. And only then would your child be able to stay in a German-speaking school because schools, for instance, come completely under the administration, I mean, the the local ethnic German um, control. Um, So in the Banat, um, the Volksgruppe takes control of the schools, the German language schools. They basically cleanse them um, of foreign influences, including Jewish teachers, for instance. Um, They put in place um, Nazi teachers. They bring teachers from Germany to train local teachers and to, well, give lessons um, in these schools. And um, attending a German school also becomes tied to mandatory service in the Deutsche Jugend, so the Nazi extracurricular group, um, which becomes tied to an entire program of basically home front service. For for boys, this also means, of course, that... um, through these schools, um, through these youth groups, through dormitories, for instance, um, they're also mobilized into um, the German military, especially the Waffen-SS. Um, and so, you know, you sort of see in um, archival records, for instance, or in something like yearbooks, I guess, um, that basically entire generations um, of students, of male students, um, suddenly disappear into the German armed forces. So basically, you know, um, German education, extracurricular um, service, um, and military service, they become very entwined. And it's hard to sort of extract yourself from that um, if you want to be considered basically an ethnic German. In the Bachka, this becomes a little more complicated, right? So as I was saying, you know, under sort of Hungarian occupation, and basically the Hungarian authorities, they're very concerned with creating um, loyal Hungarian citizens in the territory, which um, in the Bachka um, causes quite a bit of conflict because um, essentially, you know, people have this image, I suppose, still from Habsburg times of Hungary as this magyarizing national force. Um, in Yugoslavia, actually, uh, during the interwar period, by the by late interwar period, um, the ethnic Germans are quite a bit more radical than ethnic Germans in Hungary. 
So they're more heavily mobilized in the Deutsche Jugend. Um, they sort of espouse Nazi ideals with a lot more enthusiasm. And suddenly they're sort of integrated into Hungary, which has its own, you know, sort of idea of creating Hungarian loyal citizens. Um, and that causes a lot of conflict. So youth there, officially 90% are still in the Deutsche Jugend. But they're also actually required to um, enlist with the Levente, which is a Hungarian national um, youth group. Um, a lot of their teachers um, are sort of replaced um, with Hungarians, or Hungarian speakers. Um, and so a lot of conflicts um, basically arise between these sort of now uh, Nazi enthusiastic German youths um, and their, you know, Hungarian teachers, Hungarian youth leaders, and so on and so forth. And to a degree, you certainly don't see um, in the Banat. Um, so there, too, you sort of see how youth themselves, you know, become agents of a certain national vision. Well, you note in your book how these German youth are both objects of these policies, but they're agents themselves. So moving on to, you know, deeper into the war, um, can you tell our listeners a bit more about how these young people were actively involved in, in fighting the war effort. So some joined the Waffen-SS, some actually joined the Wehrmacht. Can you talk a little bit about the support, why they would have joined them, and then also resistance? Because you also note there were some who were resistant to this, and especially families who were trying to prohibit uh, young people. So, of course, we're talking about males here uh, from joining um, you know, both of these, these military groups. Again, it plays out um, fairly differently depending on, you know, the the area of occupation we're talking about. Um, so in terms of military mobilization, I mean, basically some of the first um, mobilization into German forces already begins um, prior to the occupation of Yugoslavia. Um, so essentially... Um, mainly through sort of local Deutsche Jugend and sports association, there's already sort of some covert um, recruiting going on around 1940. Um, and a lot of that happens um, actually in relation to um, sort of the relocation of tens of thousands of ethnic Germans from Bessarabia and Bukovina um, in summer 1940. Um, these people basically um, arrive um, in Yugoslavia as one of their stops, and thousands of local ethnic German youths are sort of mobilized um, to erect tents, to cook meals, to you know entertain um, these ethnic Germans, and so on and so forth. Um, now, this also becomes, uh, as I found in my research, sort of one of one of the first. Um, opportunities really for um, Reich German authorities to recruit um, local ethnic Germans into forces like the Wehrmacht or the Waffen-SS. Um, there's also um, prior to April 1941, which is when Yugoslavia was invaded, um, there are efforts to educate, you know, future sort of German military leaders uh, in Germany. Um, so future Waffen-SS leaders and so on, they come back to Yugoslavia. They become active in ethnic German sports groups and so on and so forth. Um, and they start forming sort of, um, well, I guess, informal uh, citizens' brigades, I guess. That would be more or less the translation of it. 
Um, and these people become, you know, active immediately in April 1941. And you have um, sort of first waves of recruitments, um, both in the Bachka and the Banat um, in 1941, um, where, for instance, um, young ethnic Germans, um, they just, they're sort of incorporated into um, the Wehrmacht divisions, for instance, that are stationed um, right there, you know, as Yugoslavia is being occupied. Um, now, as the occupation continues, um, this becomes more formalized, but in very different ways in both territories. So in the Banat, um, certainly actually the local ethnic German leaders, um, they're even more enthusiastic than sort of Reich German leaders in terms of actually bringing um, young men into German military service. Um, so for instance, the the, the local head of the Volksgruppe, Sepp Janko, um, he announces, you know, that um, service in the Waffen-SS um, is now mandatory um, for young ethnic German men when actually factually wasn't yet, you know. Um, and also through, you know, basically the, the activism of young Nazi enthusiasts um, in the region, um, more and more young men, you know, sign up sort of through the Deutsche Jugend, through the schools, through the sports associations for military service with the Waffen-SS. And the Banat, um, um, well, in fact, um, the first um, Waffen-SS division um, to be established um, that was not made of German citizens, I mean, basically of Auslandsdeutsche, was the Prince Eugen Division, and that was established basically primarily with recruits um, from Southeastern Europe, primarily um, with recruits from the Banat. Um, so they become very, very important um, in that as well. Now, as you know, the war drags on, of course, there are people who don't want to sign up. Um, but most of these people, you know, thanks to, of course, you know, sort of the Nazi control of the region, um, they're found out and mobilized anyways. In the Bachka, it's a lot more complicated because, as I said, you know, the, the, the region comes under Hungarian um, occupation. Um, and so, in fact, um, until about, well, certainly until about 1944, when um, Hungary itself um, is occupied by Germany um, and the region, therefore, comes under more direct German influence, um, Basically, the Hungarian authorities, they want to recruit um, ethnic Germans for the Hungarian forces, the Hunvid. Um, but, you know, with sort of through, 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 um, I guess, collaboration um, with the Nazi authorities and so on and so forth, um, most ethnic Germans, in fact, they have the choice um, in these early recruitment drives whether they'd prefer to join the Hunvid, the Hungarian forces, um, or the German forces. Now, um, of course, as in, you know, the Banat, you have um, Nazi enthusiasts who, who don't hesitate and they sign up immediately for the Waffen-SS, uh, for the Prince Eugen Division and so on, um, which was, you know, heavily advertised as sort of the, the honorable German thing to do in the region. Um, and um, some, you know, sort of sign up um, well, for practicalities, in a way, you know, so, so, for instance, you know, there's sort of rumors going around um, in these um, Donaushaben communities um, that ethnic German recruits in the Hungarian military, I mean, 
they they'll be sort of second class citizens because they don't understand Hungarian. They'll be sent to the bloodiest fronts immediately. Um, and so, you know, some recruits, they sort of, I mean, certainly this was always um, emphasized by um, interviewees um, who I spoke to. Um, they picked, you know, the the German forces because they, they'd understand the language of command, basically. They, they thought they'd be treated better and they were promised German citizenship. Um, now, there are sort of three main waves of recruitment uh, in the Bachka, and they become more and more violent as people become sort of more and more resistant to join. So by the very end, basically, um, so 1944, the Germans are now in charge. They're absolutely desperate for any, you know, military uh, mobilizable men. Um, basically, um, they start hunting out, you know, sort of the last people. So people, you know, who are, I mean, essentially people are mobilized between, I found, you know, records from the age of 14 to the age of 68 or something like that. Um, I mean, really people who had already fought, you know, in the Habsburg forces, um, they're mobilized again. So some people, you know, who, who refuse um, absolutely to be mobilized, they they go into hiding, for instance, um, in you know country homes, uh, in basements, and so on. And a lot of these people, in fact, are denounced um, by their neighbors um, who you know were engaged in these conflicts, anyways. I mean, Braunschweig. I was sort of talking about that too. I mean, there was this incredible fracture in these societies. So a lot of these uh, sort of final men who refused to be mobilized. Um, they're hunted down, denounced, um, and then essentially forced into the Waffen-SS. Um, so here too, you know, sort of the range of experiences and the range of motivation was, was, was huge. So for those German youth who were recruited either voluntarily or through coercion uh, into the Waffen-SS in Wehrmacht, where were they sent? What campaigns did they fight in? Um, yeah, that's um, a great question. I mean, Basically, um, I think, you know, I'm not I'm not a military historian in that sense, and it's not really sort of uh, what I focused on necessarily for the book, right? Um, but it's a very important question. I mean, basically, um, I think you'll find Don Ashwaben in virtually any theater of war in Europe at the time. Most um, of these forces, of course, were concentrated towards the east. Now, these Waffen-SS divisions um, primarily were stationed in southeastern Europe. Um, where they were involved in um, generally, um, I mean, they were usually involved in very brutal sort of anti-partisan, well, raids um, and things. But then, of course, you also had, I mean, you had mm, mobilizees on the, 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 the Eastern Front. So I found, you know, all kinds of interesting material of basically 14, 15, 16-year-old Donashwaben who were sent to the Eastern Front where they die near Stalingrad and then they're, you know, hailed as absolute heroes in the local press. Um, and then you also have ethnic Germans who serve in concentration camps. I mean, Mauthausen, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, um, and so on. So this is definitely something that um, requires a lot more research. But this is, you know, something I found out um, definitely in my interviews. Um, so interviewees mention these things, definitely in the press. Um, so very interestingly, for instance, um, you know, uh, so the local German Nazi press, 
they'd also print, you know, sort of messages from the front and these kinds of things. Um, so he had, you know, messages or even pictures of smiling, you know, ethnic German um, officers in Auschwitz and these kinds of things um, circulating in the 1940s in these villages. <clears throat> and then, um, yeah, I mean, just sort of bits and pieces of sort of very interesting archival material, too, that relates also to youth and youthful agency. So, um, for instance, I saw one petition of um, basically uh, teenagers, Dornoschwaben teenagers who were mobilized into the Waffen-SS in 1942, um, were then sent, you know, to work in Mauthausen, uh, the concentration camp there, um, apparently did not like what they were implemented for there. Um, and petitioned basically the military authorities to send them um, into a different division and preferably, you know, like the Prinz Eugen um, Mountain Division. So, yeah, so they were involved um, in, yeah, most, I think, imaginable brutalities. Well, and certainly in war is scarring enough for, let's talk about, you know, an adolescent who's, you know, 14, 15, but to be sent to a concentration camp where, you had no expectation that this was even happening. And here you are uh, as an overseer and you have to enforce these types of regulation and also witness, even participate in, in the slaughter of thousands, right? Um, I, I can imagine. And I'm surprised um, that your interviewees even discussed that. That's pretty revealing. A follow-up real quickly on this. What was the age range of these individuals then that were sent to the front or to the, to the camps? Well, that's, um, again, it's sort of tricky, right? I mean, it's um, there's, there's still a lot of research that has to be done on that. I mean, I didn't find anything like, you know, comprehensive lists of recruits with where they went and their ages and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, drawing from archival materials, press and so on, I think the certainly the youngest recruits I had, I, I, I read about um, were 14 when they were mobilized. I mean, basically illegally. Um, like it was not, I mean, theoretically, certainly the Bachka teenagers, they still had to get the written consent of their parents to be able to join um, <laughs> a military force, whether this was, you know, implemented is another question. So the youngest ones were about 14, I would say, at least according to the, the sources I've seen. Um, and then the oldest, um, as I said, were in their late 60s, sort of towards the end of the war when they were really just desperate for, for anyone. <laughs> right. Same, yeah. same case in, in Germany, mobilizing yeah. really young, you know, adolescents. Okay, so in August 1944, the tide of the war turns and Soviet troops enter the Western Banat and then the Bachka. So what happens to these ethnic German communities during this campaign? Um, so things become very dramatic, very fast. So by basically the end of August, so the end of August um, 1944, Romania switches sides. Um, and suddenly, um, basically, this entire area um, of the Voivodina is exposed, completely exposed. Um, and, um, you know, people are sort of hearing um, that, you know, the, the, the front is collapsing. They start seeing, you know, refugees um, from further east, you know, running through their towns. Um, and so people are basically um, faced with a choice of, well, do we leave or do we go? 
German authorities, um, officially, they actually do very little to sort of evacuate ethnic Germans uh, in the region, uh, unlike in other, you know, sort of Eastern European territories. Um, in the Bachka, something like half of the people flee. In the Banat, it's maybe 10%. Um, and of those who stay, I mean, basically, they they see very quickly um, the sort of arrival of Soviet and partisan forces, um, and they're basically imprisoned. I mean, if they survive this, <laughs> which a lot of especially men and young boys do not, um, most of them ended up in camp. So something like 180,000 um, ethnic Germans um, in the Voivodina, they're put in an internment camp. Um, something between, well, the statistics vary vastly on all these questions, right? But something between 12 and 30,000 Donauschwaben are um, brought to the Soviet Union where they worked as forced laborers. And then finally in about, uh, well, in 1948, the last camps for ethnic Germans in Yugoslavia, they shut down basically as I think the last camps uh, in all of Europe for ethnic Germans. Um, those who were there, um, who were still there, they sort of received the right from 1949 onwards to sort of reapply for Yugoslav citizenship. But most, of course, they tried to join their families um, in Germany and the United States and so on. Um, so essentially, most of this population didn't stay. Um, something like 50,000 um, ethnic Germans, they died. I mean, Yugoslav ethnic Germans, they died uh, over the course of their internment, of their forced labor, and so on. Um, so really, it was just a couple thousand Donashvaben who were sort of left, you know, in the region um, in the 1990s when sort of the, you know, some of the censuses, I guess, still asked, you know, for, for ethnic German affiliation and so on. You definitely do still have people there who identify um, as ethnic Germans. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was, you know, lucky enough to do an interview actually with a um, very elderly lady um, who had, you know, survived the war, had survived internment and all these kinds of things and decided to stay uh, nevertheless and spent her entire life, you know, living in the same house that her ancestors had lived in for 200 years and so on. Um, but really, that's quite an exception. Um, so, um, you know, unlike in many other sort of Eastern, Central, European countries, um, there's not much left um, of these ethnic German communities. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's the case in Romania. I interviewed some ethnic Germans there, and uh, they were all elderly, and really there weren't many young people at all. Well, uh, we have run out of time, and so I'd like to end this interview by asking you uh, about your current research, your current project. Okay. Well, um, as you said at the very beginning, I am currently leading um, a research project on informal communication um, in Nazi Europe. Um, so I have a fantastic little team of, um, well, different PhD students who are working on um, informal communication in uh, Nazi Germany, in German-occupied France, and in German-occupied Poland during the Holocaust. Um, and I'm looking at, uh, basically, I'm writing a transnational sort of entangled history of forced migration in World War II and its immediate aftermath. Um, and I'm doing that by looking uh, in particular at rumors. Um, 
So as a project, we're looking at um, rumors, gossip, divinations, um, things like that, basically as a way to write sort of a cultural history of communication and of social relations and mentalities and so on um, in conditions of war and, you know, national socialism in particular. Um, So I'm, um, yeah, basically working a little bit on the Donauschwaden still. They're one of my case studies, especially this period of, you know, when they, when they leave, but I'm also looking at different, um, well, I guess post Habsburg society. So I'm looking at the Jewish community, um, in Vienna. I'm looking at the sort of so-called option, um, of, um, German speakers in South Tyrol. So I'm looking at different case studies and looking at how, um, informal communication, rumor, questions of, well, factual veracity play into um, understanding, I guess, one's own situation um, in the case of potential or actual forced displacement. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, I really look forward to the scholarship that comes out of this project. It just sounds really exciting. Um, And I imagine it's going to really expand our understanding of these processes during this period. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today about your wonderful book. um, And I wish you all the best uh, on this project. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your very thoughtful questions. So I really enjoyed this interview.